Bible, it would be useful, I think, for you to open it again to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, as we'll be uh, referring to, to those few verses, uh, really from verses 12 to 17, as we, as we go through. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, perhaps, I don't know when it was written, but perhaps before uh, Wikipedia uh, some of you might not even imagine that there was a world before Google and before Wikipedia, but there was. Uh, apparently, um, church house in the center of town, the, the assembly buildings, the, the administrative center for the Presbyterian church received a letter, a letter from a young lad uh, who was a, a pupil in one of the schools in Belfast, and he wrote this Dear sir or madam, this term in religious studies, we are doing God. Please send details and a pamphlet. Yours sincerely, Johnny. Okay? Now, again, I want to suggest that uh, there's some flaws in his thinking, uh, Johnny's thinking at that point, that somehow you could do God in one term uh, and then tick him off your list, knowing everything uh, that you need to know, much less that you could summarize all that's important, all that's true about who God is and what he's done in an A5 pamphlet. Okay, I want to suggest that that is, is, is uh, ridiculous, uh, laughable even. But I also think, as I heard about that letter this week, I think tragically there's a little bit of that schoolboy in every single one of us. A little bit of that schoolboy in every single one of us in the sense that I think very often our God is way too small. Our God is way too small. Um, Whether you've been on the road for a long time as a Christian, um, thinking really that you know it all now, uh, or if you are not yet a Christian and happy to dismiss him, uh, the danger is either of us could fall into the same same error. Uh, Error that thinking that there's nothing uh, awesome, marvelous, mysterious, extravagant, awe-inspiring about who God actually is. Um, And what we want to do over these next few weeks is really to ignite, to try to ignite a sense of awe uh, by looking at the character of God, who he really is, uh, and what he has really done uh, for us. You see, the sad reality is that we can come to God in prayer, thinking that we command him. Uh, that we can come to God uh, thinking that he can be predicted. Uh, And we wouldn't be so crass as to say it, but we can come to God attempting to control him, control him by how we, what we do, the bargains that we make with him. And I think that that is true for every single one of us. We can all slip into that sort of thinking. I was traveling uh, just uh, recently past a church, uh, and they had a church notice board, a church notice board. Uh, And on the church notice board, it said, trust God. Okay, great start. Trust God. Uh, But then it went on to say, trust God. It's a great way for you to fulfill your potential. Trust God. It's a great way for you to fulfill your potential. Now, what's important there in that sentence well, what's important there is my potential. God, if he's there, uh, is there to serve me. He's there to help me become the better me. 
no hint that the God of the universe uh, might have created me to serve him for his glory. Uh, No concept that God might be uh, the real center and focus uh, and reason for the entire universe and that we are here for his glory, not him here for our glory. And you see, the reality is for all of us, there's a massive temptation for us to have a pocket-sized God, a pocket-sized God that we can control and manipulate But what we see when we read through the scriptures is that God will not be put in a box like that. Uh, He is bigger and more awesome uh, than we often uh, perceive him to be. And so we're starting this little eight-week series. We've called it uh, Incomparable. Um, Eight ways in which God is different from you. Eight ways that God is different from me. I have shamelessly stolen this uh, from Jen Wilkins' excellent book. Right? Excellent book, None Like Him. Ten ways God is different from us. So if you want the other two, <laughs> you've got to buy the book. But it would be a brilliant compa- companion to the series, actually, if you want to just look through. Uh, some. Uh, it's a brilliant, a brilliant read. Uh, and what she has in this little book uh, is that she has... Uh, a list of attributes. We'll come back to this in a moment, but she has a list of attributes that are really helpful uh, where she focuses in on the character of God, the character of God, and takes you through that. Um, You see, there's a couple of ways to get to know someone. Uh, The first way to get to know someone, uh, if you encounter them for the very first time, is, what's the first question you might ask? If you've never met someone before and you encounter them, What's your name? What's your name? That'd be the first thing to, to ask, isn't it? What's your name? Uh, you can learn a little bit about someone by their name. Maybe you know some of their extended family or something, especially in Northern Ireland. That's very possible. Uh, so you, know, you can learn something about them by their name, but maybe even more so if they have a nickname. If they have a nickname, uh, you can tell maybe a little bit. You know, I had a friend at school. He was called Smiley. Uh, that tells you a little bit about his temperament. He was a happy chappy uh, all the time. Uh, so a nickname can often tell you something a little bit about a person's personality. But maybe they have a title as well as a name, a title. And that can tell you something about the person's profession. And so if they're professor or doctor or reverend or chief justice, you can tell something about who they are, what they do. Um, so that is often we can learn something about someone, begin to learn something about someone by their name and title. And, and certainly in Scripture, God discloses his name and shares with you the titles that he has. And so Moses at the burning bush, God introduces himself and tells Moses his name. I am who I am, Yahweh, the, the living one, the, the God who's eternally alive. That's his name. And every time in the the Bible you read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is actually God's name, Yahweh. But then there's also all sorts of other titles, El Shaddai, the the God Almighty, Adonai, Shabbat, the the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You get loads of these titles, and perhaps that would be a useful series to do some other time, is to go through some of the names and titles of God in the Bible to see what we learn about him. Uh, But... Another way to get to know someone is 
by observing their attributes, by observing their attributes. Now, what I mean by that, uh, you see, we don't just have a, a Coulter and a Gamble and a Priestley and a McLennan. You have a musical McLennan. You have an athletic Gamble. You get the idea. You, you get the idea. You have a, 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 a generous Priestley. You get, you get the idea. We can learn something about their, what they're like, their attributes, by observing them. And that's what we're going to do in this, these next eight weeks. We're going to look at some of the attributes, the describing words as they relate to God. What is God like? What is God like? Can we put up that little list? So in, in uh, Jen's book, she gives two lists, two lists of attributes of God, describing words of God's character. Uh, and there's one list, uh, the list on the right, uh, holy, loving, just, good, merciful, gracious. And those are attributes of God's character that he shares with us and that we can share with him. Um, and and that, that's normal, isn't it? And so if you, if you have children, um, very often your children often unwittingly will begin to share some of the aspects of your character that they see and start to imitate. And so it is with God. God wants us to be holy and loving and just and good and merciful and gracious and on, on down through the list. God wants us to be like that. But as you read through the Bible, you will see that there's attributes of God, things that describe him that are true only of him. They're not true of us. They're not true of us. Uh, and really, that's what we're going to look at over these next eight weeks. We're going to try to look at some of those characteristics of God that are only true for him, that he is infinite, uh, incomprehensible, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, unchanging, omniscient. And we're going to cherry-pick some of these lists. And I'm very grateful to some of the guest speakers, uh, such as David Luke there, uh, who's going to pick up on some of these attributes uh, while I'm away. And the first one we're going to look at then is number one on Jen's list uh, this morning, the idea that God is infinite, that God is infinite. Um, but before we leave that list, uh, it's important just, and, and I think this is the contribution that Jen makes in her book. There's been lots and lots and lots of books on the attributes of God that have been written down through the years, down through the centuries, in fact. But what Jen does really helpfully when she lays out that list is she says, when you look at the list on the left, those list of things that only God is, she observes that actually so often we run into so much trouble. In fact, she goes so far as to say that every agony and at the root of much of our sin comes from the fact that we attempt to do things that only God can do. That we attempt to do things that only God can do. Just take the last one on the list. God is sovereign. He's utterly in control of the whole show. Actually, so much of our anger uh, comes from the fact that we try to be in control and we can't. We're desperately trying to be in control all the time. Much of our anxiety comes from the fact that we're desperately trying to be in control and we're not. And so each week we're going to try to pick out how this attribute that's uniquely true of God 
is dangerous if we try to grasp it for ourselves. It's harmful if we do that. Well, first then, let's look at this first idea, the idea that God is infinite, that God is infinite. What we mean by that is God cannot be limited. God cannot be limited by any of the ways that we put limits on other people and things. So God cannot be limited by any of the ways that we put limits on other people and things. And what we see is, is in Isaiah 40, here is how the Bible begins to describe God being limitless. Uh, in this beautiful, uh, rightly famous uh, passage. Now, a little bit of context. Again, we're diving right into the middle of a very big, long, complicated book. Um, just to say, God uh, rescued his people. Many of you will know, rescued his people uh, from Egypt with Moses, brought them into the promised land uh, after giving them his law, uh, the, the right ways and wise ways to live in his land. But the people continue to ignore God. They continue to reject God's word, reject God's loving rules, uh, and live their own way. God time and time and time again sent prophet and messenger and prophet uh, to come and warn his people to turn from their wicked ways, but the people continually refused. And so the land was filled with violence. The land was filled with immorality and injustice. But the warning always was that one day judgment would come if they refused to turn from their wicked ways. And by the time Isaiah 40, uh, well, the the group that Isaiah 40 is addressing in, in this part of the book are those to whom that punishment has already fallen. Because in 587 uh, BC, the Babylonian Empire, uh, under the famous king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, conquered the the land of the Jews, uh, sacked Jerusalem, and carried the Jewish people off into captivity. And it's those people who are a beleaguered, uh, oppressed minority now, in Babylon that Isaiah is writing to. And at the beginning of the chapter, wonderfully, Isaiah has said, be comforted, you're going to be liberated. You're going to be set free from your captivity in Babylon and God is going to take you home. It's a wonderful promise, a wonderful promise that God will rescue them. But Isaiah now anticipates their doubt. Babylon looks really strong. We've got, we're a hopeless ragtag bunch How could we escape Babylon? And it's as if Isaiah is saying, do you honestly think, do you honestly think that this is beyond God? Do you honestly think that he doesn't have the strength uh, to mount a rescue operation? Let Let me just tell you for a moment what your God is like. And really then he breaks into this section in the middle. And it's to reassure them about the promise that he's already made. Uh, And how does he reassure them? What does he say? He turns their attention to think about the God who's really there. What is he like? And he says three things, and we're not going to look at them all. Uh, He says three things. Number one, your God is beyond measure. He's beyond measure, verses 12 to 17. Then he goes on to say, your God is beyond comparison, verses 18 to 24. And then in verses 25 to 26, he's beyond all rivals. So he's beyond measure, he's beyond comparison, he's beyond all rivals. 
Uh, we're just going to look at the first one uh, for a few moments, that God is beyond all measure. And there's different ways in which God is beyond measure uh, in these verses. First way that God is beyond measure, he's beyond the measure of size. He's beyond the measure of size. Listen again to the words of first sentence number 12 um, on page 724. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth or the span of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? You see all the language of measurement there? Uh, All the ways in which God is measuring things? Um, So the hollow of your hand, if you cup your hand, how much can you hold in there? How much water? Can you hold in there? A few drops, really. That's about it. You can't hold much in the the palm, the hollow of one hand. Second, um, he has marked off the heavens with the span of his hand, the span of your hands, the distance probably between your thumb and your little finger. How far is that? Maybe eight inches, maybe. No old money. 20 centimeters, maybe, if you've got a a long span. Not very much. Not very much. You can't measure much with that. Um, Or um, what can you fit in a basket? What can you fit in a basket? So you go to Sainsbury's or Tesco's and other supermarkets are available. Uh, But you go to a a supermarket uh, and you get a basket. What can you fit in a basket? You can fit a couple of items. In fact, you you get your own queue, don't you, if you go and take a basket. Because you're not meant to have very much. Uh, You're meant to be able to move quickly through that queue. A few items, not much. What's on uh, the scales on your kitchen counter? Bit of flour, not even a full bag. Bit of flour, not very much. You see, these are all things that are for small measurements. These are all small measurements. There's no yardstick, there's no tape measure. These are small, tiny measurements. And what does God measure? with these small, tiny measures. What's in the palm of his hand? Well, there's the Atlantic. There's the Pacific. There's the Indian. There's the Arctic. And all the southern oceans. In one hand, he doesn't even need a second hand. Uh, What does he mark out with a span? A span. I had to write some of these uh, facts and figures down. The Milky Way, our galaxy, it takes is so vast that it takes light a hundred thousand years to travel from one end of it to the other. Light traveling as fast as light travels, it takes it a hundred thousand years to travel. The nearest star, sorry, the nearest galaxy we have the, to our Milky Way galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, and it's 200 billion light years away. And apparently there's over a thousand billion galaxies. How does God measure the size of the universe in light years? 
know the span of his hand. That's what he measures the universe in. What's on God's kitchen scales? Sorry, first, what's in his basket? What's in his basket? Well, all the dust of the earth, the Sahara, the Gobi, the Mojave, the Kalahari Desert, and all the other dust and dirt and soil on this planet. What's on his scales? What's on his scales? Just, just tucked at the corner of the scales on his worktop. Well, there's the Himalayas. There's the Andes, the Rockies, the Alps, and all the sleeves of uh, the Mourn Mountains that you've climbed. Every one of them. They're all there. Just on the corner of his scale. Get the idea? These are measurements that we use to measure really tiny things. And yet for God, what can he measure with these small measurements? Everything. Everything. God is beyond uh, the measure of size. God is beyond the measure of size. But then the language moves from the language of measurement in verses 13 and 14 to the language of the classroom. The language of the classroom because God is not only beyond the measure of all size, but he's beyond all measure of knowledge beyond all measure of knowledge. Here we come into the the arena, the world of A-levels and degrees and PhDs and postgraduate diplomas and MBAs and professional exams. Um, And then we read in a series of these uh, rhetorical questions, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord uh, as his counselor? To whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him who taught him the right way you get the language you get the idea we everything we know everything we know had to be taught to us at some point now you may know a lot that just means other people have taught you a lot or you've read a lot At what point did God have to put up his hand and ask for help and clarification? What course did God have to go on to learn knowledge? To whom did God have to submit planning permission to create a universe? The answer is never, none and no one. He is in himself the source of all knowledge and all wisdom and all understanding. Uh, just last Sunday as we interviewed some folks uh, at the front here for baptism, there were young people, uh, and they were all telling us about how happy they were uh, with life in general. Mainly seems, it seems to be because most of their exams were finished. Because this is exam time, exam time. We're learning. And that is a beautiful thing. Not, not doing exams, that's a terrible thing, but, but actually filling your brain, the opportunity to, to be taught and to expand your brain to fill it with, with knowledge, to fill it with information about science and mathematics and literature and the arts. That is a, that's a wonderful thing. 
That's a wonderful thing. And so if you're still studying, um, look at this side of the room, if you're still studying, pursue it with all you've got. Pursue it with all you've got. It's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, And I hope we all have a taste for learning such that we never want to stop learning. There's always more to learn, no matter how young or old you are, no matter how inexperienced or experienced you are. There's always more to learn, always more to learn. And I hope you never stop trying to learn. But what Isaiah is saying, never, ever think, never, ever think that you know more than God. Never think you know more than God. We should be humbled by this comparison. Our knowledge may be broad and getting broader. Our understanding may be deep and getting deeper. But our puny, finite minds compared to God's infinite mind, well, there's absolutely no comparison. They're not even on the same scale. We can never know more than God because he knows all things exhaustively and perfectly. He knows all things exhaustively and perfectly. God is beyond the measure of knowledge. He's beyond the measure of size. He's beyond the measure of knowledge. And then thirdly, he's beyond the measure of our worship. He's beyond the measure of our worship. Just glance down to verse 16. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Lebanon was a country next door to to Israel. Uh, It was famous for its cedar trees. Uh, And Isaiah is saying, suppose you could get every single tree in Lebanon. Cut down every tree and make it into a massive, massive, massive altar. And then get every single animal in the land and offer it all as a sacrifice to God. Do you think that would be worthy of him? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Not at all. Not even coming close. If you could have the most skillful musicians at the frontier, we've got pretty skillful musicians here. We're very grateful to have them. But if you could have the most skillful musicians in the world playing the most beautiful music in the world, then joined in by a stadium, like Wembley Stadium, 90,000 people join their voices to their singing. And the sound is thunderous and moving. Would it be worthy of God? And the answer is not even close. Not even close. If you could live your life, if you could live your life with perfect devotion to him in thought and in word and in deed, which is impossible, but imagine you could, would that be worthy of him? And again, it doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close. Here's a quote from uh, one of the great commentators on the book of Isaiah, commenting on this verse, Alec Mateer says this, over every human effort to move God, over every human effort to meet God's demands, uh, uh, I can't read that, uh, to satisfy, sorry, satisfy, I've I've written over it, unfortunately, Uh, to satisfy his requirements, to maneuver him to our advantage and climb into his good books over every single one of them, Isaiah 
rights. Not enough. Not enough. What we're, to, we're to be humbled by this description of who God is. Absolutely humbled before him. As I goes even further uh, to say in, um, that we are nothing before him. We are nothing before him. Now what Isaiah means by that is not that we are of no value to him because we are of immense value to God. But the reality, this is, this, he's talking about our status. You see, the reality is that we are tiny, tiny little organisms on a dinky little planet in a pokey little galaxy in a very, very, very big universe. Objectively, we are nothing. We are nothing compared to God and who he is. How should we respond? How should we respond to this? If this is who God really is, beyond all measure of size, beyond all measure of knowledge, beyond all measure of our worship, how should we respond? Three things, I think, very briefly. Uh, first, we need to commit to contemplating God's limitlessness. Contemplating God's limitlessness. Thinking through the fact that God is beyond all measure. Uh, if we put up that list again, let's put up that list again. If you look down even at the, the right-hand list, that God is holy, loving, just, good, merciful, gracious. The descriptions that the Bible uses of God's character Everything that is true of God is infinitely true, is infinitely true. You see, it's no accident that we've chosen infinite as the first one, because it's not that infinite is the first attribute that God has, and then he moves on to the rest of them. No, no, no. Infinite is what describes every other attribute and describing word that follows. Everything that is true of God is infinitely true. He is infinitely creative. He is infinitely sustaining. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely loving. He's not limited by time in any way. He knows no limit for his presence, for his knowledge, or for his power. He is beyond all limit. And so as Isaiah says in Isaiah verse Chapter 40, verse 9, here is, or perhaps better, behold your God. This is who your God is in his awesome splendor. And if we are to be inspired to worship God in a way that is approaching, moving towards being appropriate, we'll never get there, but it's moving towards being appropriate, then we have to fill our minds with the character of God to consider who he is. Only then will we, will we be inspired to worship him as we ought uh, and to respond to him with joyful sacrifice and passionate adoration. We need to commit to contemplating the limitlessness of God. Second, I think we need to count our limitations, count our limitations 
Um, when, when you begin a new relationship, um, we talk about the early phase of that as the, the honeymoon period. Uh, a few smirks around the honeymoon period. Uh, when you think, this person that I'm with. I, why was I wasting my time with all those other relationships when this sort of connection is available, when I could have had this? This is amazing. This person is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the, the giving them your time and your attention and your affection is a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. And then, and then, they don't return a phone call you start to notice a really annoying habit that they have. Um, You see some pretty significant character flaw. You've discovered a limit. You've discovered a limit, haven't you? Um, That when you previously thought your love for them could be limitless, suddenly you're down back to earth with a bump. You've discovered they're human. They're human. And we need to learn to love other people as humans, uh, not as fantasies. You see, we are limited. We're all limited. We're limited because we're finite. We're limited because we're finite, and that's humbling to remember that. Um, We are limited uh, in our strength uh, and energy. We're limited in our knowledge and understanding. And we're also limited because we're limited to one place at one time. How many rooms are you in right now? Well, that's, an e- that's easy mathematics, isn't it? You're in one room right now. Because God has designed us to be limited. God is not limited, as we'll see as we go, we go on in this series. God is not limited by place. But we are. We are limited by place. We're limited to, to this place with this group of people, with this family, with this job uh, for this period of time. We are limited. Um, I think part of our problem comes from the fact, uh, our dissatisfaction and discontent comes from the fact that we imagine I would be happier if I was just over there. But God has placed you here. God has placed you here for a reason. And we need to find joy and satisfaction in that. I came across this book this week, uh, and I find this helpful too. Again, for a summer read, I encouraging I encourage you to read it. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. Because I, I guess I've become persuaded by this, I think, that your phone is selling you the lie that you can be in more than one place at one time. That you're trying to connect digitally, virtually, with people on the other side of the world while you're here. And I see that can become destructive for the relationships you have right here. My Ruth will have to keep me accountable to this, but I think what that means, if I'm right, I think what that means is that when we are face-to-face with someone, you put your phone away. Put your phone away. Don't have it on the table. Perhaps don't even have it in your pocket, buzzing. Be where you are. Be where you are. God has placed you here with this group of people for a reason. And it leads only to dissatisfaction and damaged relationships if we try to grasp an attribute that belongs only to God. We are in one place 
at one time. You may disagree with me with that. Um, but you see what I'm trying to do. You see what I'm trying to do. We are limited because we're finite, but, and with this we'll close, we're limited because we're fallen. We're limited because we're fallen. We're sinful people. Let's bring up the list one more time, Jennifer. As you look down the, le- the, the right-hand list, holy, loving, just, good, merciful, gracious, etc. God is infinite in all of those things. His holiness, love, justice, goodness cannot be measured. But a moment's reflection, you realize that ours can, can't it? Ours can. We begin to see, actually, with the comparison to God, just how far, or as Paul would say, how far short of the glory of God we have fallen. We are flawed in all these areas. Some of us have progressed a little bit further in holiness than others, but none of us would would say we're perfect, rightly say we're perfect, um, because we're all imperfect. We're all limited in our patience. Uh, We are all limited in our self-sacrifice for others. Uh, We are all sinful people. And by contemplating our limits, it's humbling and actually pushes us to our final response where we need to consider Christ, consider Christ. You see, the infinity of God, the limitlessness of God should fill us with increased joy and wonder as we consider who God is for us in Christ. Because the God who is the source of all life and unchanging, well, he joined himself in the womb of a a virgin to human finite nature so that the God who's unchanging developed and grew. The God who is self-existent, has life in himself, experienced death. You see just how far God stepped down to rescue people like you and me. Such is his love for us. And we begin to look at the cross with hopefully a new angle, new eyes, and we begin to see that infinite holiness and infinite love met together at the cross so that God's love for us is without measure. Let me pray as we before we share in the Lord's Supper together.